This, this is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission, your mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One make, make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten filling in for Buck Sexton here on a summer Friday night. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us here. Please follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten. By way of background, if you haven't heard me before, I'm a senior contributor at The Federalist, a fellow at the Claremont Institute, and a senior fellow at the London Center for Policy Research. And I just want to start off first by thanking Buck for giving me the opportunity to fill his shoes here in the Freedom Hut, in the not-so-free Midtown Manhattan. All right, so we have a lot to get to this evening. We're going to talk a bit about U.S.-China policy in Hong Kong. Lots of news today regarding the so-called trade war and the U.S. economy and, of course, the political ramifications of what is going to transpire as we get towards the election. We're going to talk a little bit about an attempt that you might not be following, but which is pretty critical of the left to Kavanaugh, another Trump appointee to a federal judicial position. And we're going to talk about the radicalism of the Tlaib Omar caucus of the Democratic Party, half of the squad and its radical roots and how those roots show that the left and Islamists and those who carry water for Islamists, their friends and those who hold their positions like Tlaib and Omar, how this relationship goes back decades. And what we're seeing right now is just their personification in the Democratic Party. And I want to start, actually, at where the Democratic Party, where progressives, where the elites are in America today. They wish to dominate America ideologically. And part of the way they seek to achieve that is by controlling the history if you control the narrative about the past, you control the, fu- the future. What is it that unites everyone on the left today? What is it that unites the left and the Islamists who are increasingly being welcomed into their party? I would suggest to you that if you look at the quotes from all these candidates for presidency and the Democratic primary, all apologizing for past positions that they held browbeating the country, calling it fundamentally evil, wrong, and you're deplorable if you think otherwise. What unites them is national self-loathing. What unites them is a belief that we are a neo-colonialist, and this is using their words frequently, rapacious, occupying aggressor. We are the world's great oppressor or victimizer. And on the international side, it's all of our adversaries who are really the oppressed, the victimized, the aggrieved. At home, it's all of the identity politics groups that the left tries to hold up to say that they are virtuous and just. The left says that hatred and bigotry underlie all of our institutions. Everything is systemically racist. And every relationship between groups, note groups, not individuals, is about power. It's about political power. Everything is about political power and politics. 
groups and their relative positions in society, in the hierarchy that the left has created of identity politics, are all that matter. It's not about the content of your individual character. It's about your group identity. Human agency doesn't exist. You are not responsible for your actions. It's all about what society has done to you. Social justice requires turning our society on its head. And if you didn't think that these narratives were pervasive enough, if they haven't been drilled into your head enough, then you need to look at an ambitious undertaking of the New York Times, which is essentially a proxy for where the elite is in America. And where the elite is in America ideologically has a lot to do with what happens to the institutions that elites lead. If the people leading the institutions are the progressive elites, the institutions are going to implement their worldview, in this case, a radical progressive worldview, an anti-American radical progressive worldview. The Times has engaged in this project called the 1619 Project. What is it about? It basically states that America was not founded in 1776. It was founded in 1619 when they claim that slavery first came here, which is actually not true based upon the historical record. It predates 1619. But what does the Times say about this project? They write in an editor's note laying out this, I believe, 100-page special, all these articles regarding America's founding in 1619. Slavery's arrival inaugurated a barbaric system of chattel slavery that would last for the next 250 years. This is sometimes referred to as the country's original sin. But it is more than that. It is the country's very origin. This editor's note continues, and this is sort of the preamble to this entire project. Out of slavery and the anti-black racism it required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. And they don't mean exceptional in a positive way here. They mean unique. The editor's note continues. It's economic might, it's industrial power, it's electoral system, diet and popular music the inequities of its public health and education, its astonishing penchant for violence, its income inequality, the example it sets for the world as a land of freedom and equality, its slang, its legal system, and the endemic racial fears and hatreds that continue to plague it to this day. The seeds of all of that were planted long before our official birth date in 1776, when the men known as our founders formally declared independence from Britain. The goal of the 1619 Project, a major initiative from the New York Times that this issue of the magazine inaugurates, is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year. Doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. Now, it is, of course, imperative for any country to look at its history with clear eyes, warts and all. But on the left, you notice that they don't actually ever really focus on the good of this country. The uniqueness of this experiment, even when we failed to live up to our ideals. They want to, by this 1619 project, in their own words, reframe the country's history. Placing the consequences, in their words, of slavery at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are. How does that manifest itself in this project? Well, the project talks about the brutality of American capitalism. It casts modern conservatives as nullificationists who basically take their political cues from John Calhoun. 
In one article, four claims are made. Quote, our democracy's founding ideals were false when they were written. The United States is a nation founded on both an ideal and a lie. One of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. When it came time to draft the Constitution, the framers carefully constructed a document that preserved and protected slavery without ever using the word. Every one of these points is wrong. But this is the view that underlies an entire project to recast our history as fundamentally an evil one with an evil that's pervaded every single institution and lives on in everything that we see in society today. So if you hate the country, if you believe that it's founded on a lie, if you say that we're hypocritical, that all of our institutions are fundamentally flawed, then why would you defend this country? You wouldn't. And that's why the progressives would say, look, morality, justice, virtue requires overturning all of these institutions. And it isn't just about the history, by the way, although they would have you believe that this is solely a history project. It's about the present. Because as we saw revealed by Slate, an internal conversation at the New York Times, talked about the fact that because they screwed up on the whole Russia narrative, they got it wrong, they're shifting their focus now to racism and its relationship to the Trump presidency. One of the staffers during that meeting said this. I'm going to read it in part. They say that racism should be the starting point for stories. You know, and I'm quoting here, like these conversations about what is racist, what isn't racist. I just feel like racism is in everything. It should be considered in our science reporting, in our culture reporting, in our national reporting. And so to me, it's less about the individual instances of racism and sort of how we're thinking about racism and white supremacy as the foundation of all of the systems in the country. And I think particularly as we are launching a 1619 project, I feel like that's going to open us up to even more criticism from people who are like, okay, well, you're saying this and you're producing this big project about this, but are you guys actually considering this in your daily reporting? And then Dean Baquet, senior executive at the New York Times, he responds, I do think that race and understanding of race should be a part of how we cover the American story. Sometimes news organizations sort of forget that in the moment, but of course it should be. I mean, one reason we all signed off on the 1619 Project and made it so ambitious and expansive was to teach our readers to think a little bit more like that. Race in the next year, and I think this is, to be frank, what I would hope you come away from this discussion with, race in the next year is going to be a huge part of the American story. And I mean race not only in terms of African Americans and their relationship with Donald Trump, but Latinos and immigration. And I think that one of the things I would love to come out of this with is for people to feel very comfortable coming to me and saying, here's how I would like you to consider telling that story. So the 1619 Project is a fundamental part of what the Times, the elite, is trying to put forth, which is a narrative about history, which says that we're a horrible country, a terrible experiment, and that slavery pervades everything today, ultimately. And then also that it's an essential part of 2020 and beating Trump. I challenged this 1619 project in a tweet, and I faced a monumental ratioing. I mean, I had the blue checkmark brigade coming at me night and day for days. It continues to this day. Because I challenged one of their tweets. One of their tweets said, each of the stories in the 1619 project takes up a modern phenomenon and reveals its history. 
from the lack of health care to mass incarceration, from the brutality of capitalism to the epidemic of sugar, no part of America has been untouched by slavery. And I responded this way. I said, quote, contrary to its stated goals, it appears the purpose of the 1619 Project is to delegitimize America and further divide and demoralize its citizenry. I got attacked for that. I was called a racist, a moron, a hypocrite, ignorant of history, a quote-unquote fragile white person. And then, of course, we got a lot of tweets about who funds the Federalists. They love that one. When we come back, I want to expound upon what I was talking about in that tweet. I want to talk about why I believe this project is so detrimental. And I want to counter some of the narratives put forth in it. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we're talking about the New York Times' 1619 project, which, as I mentioned, I think is representative of what really unites the left today, which is a national self-loathing and a belief that we've been a fundamentally immoral country from the start. And the only way to fix it is to turn our institutions on their heads. I want to correct some of that history that I discussed that the New York Times puts forth in this project before we bring on our first guest tonight. They talk about the fact that in the Constitution, it was about preserving slavery and essentially the founders had no issues with it. Let's actually look at what some of the founders said about slavery. Here's George Washington in 1786. And and I'm just, I'm going to put this forth because it's imperative to know this history because in the absence of a competing narrative, the left will always win. They talk about balance. There will be no balance. And by the way, this, they built a whole curriculum around this 1619 project, which they're trying to push out to thousands of schools across the country. Here's George Washington, 1786. There's not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of it, that is, slavery. John Adams, 1819, every measure of prudence ought to be assumed for the eventual total extirpation of slavery from the United States. I have, through my whole life, held the practice of slavery in abhorrence. Ben Franklin, 1789, slavery is an atrocious debasement of human nature. Alexander Hamilton, 1795, the laws of certain states given ownership in the service of slaves as personal property, but being men by the laws of God and nature, they were capable of acquiring liberty. And when the captor in war thought fit to give them liberty, the gift was not only valid, but irrevocable. James Madison, 1787, we have seen the mere distinction of color made in the most enlightened people of time, a ground of the most oppressive dominion ever exercised by man over man. You want to talk about what the founders thought about this from a political perspective? Well, contrary to how the left would portray it, the three-fifths compromise itself was not about legitimizing slavery. It was about trying to reduce the power of the South. See, the South wanted each slave to be counted as one person, one vote, to increase their power. The three-fifths compromise was about decreasing Southern power. With respect to the Constitution, the importation of slaves was guaranteed to persist only for 20 years following the signing of the Constitution, which was a compromise with the South. And Jefferson signed into law a federal prohibition of the slave trade the day that it was supposed to expire. That provision no longer prevailed on January 1, 1808. Here's what Lincoln said. The argument of necessity was the only argument they, the founders, ever admitted in favor of slavery. 
And so far, only as it carried them, did they ever go. They found the institution existing among us, which they could not help, and they cast blame upon the British king for having permitted its introduction. Before the Constitution, they prohibited its introduction into the Northwestern Territory, the only country we owned, then free from it. At the framing and adoption of the Constitution, they forbore to so much as mention the word slave or slavery in the whole instrument. In the provision for the recovery of fugitives, the slave is spoken of as a person held to service or labor. In that prohibiting the abolition of the African slave trade for 20 years that I just mentioned, that trade is spoken of as the migration or importation of such persons as any of the states now existing shall think proper to admit. These are the only provisions alluding to slavery. Thus, the thing is hid away in the Constitution, just as an afflicted man hides away a wen or a cancer, which he dares not cut out at once, lest he bleed to death. With the promise, nevertheless, that the cutting may begin at the end of a given time. Less than this our fathers could not do, and now more they would not do. Necessity drove them so far and farther they would not go. But this is not all. The earliest Congress under the Constitution took the same view of slavery. They hedged and hemmed it in to the narrowest limits of necessity. Lincoln added, The plain, unmistakable spirit of that age toward slavery was hostility to the principle and toleration only by necessity. Here's what Frederick Douglass said about it. The charge of a pro-slavery constitution, in his words, is, quote, a slander upon the memory of the founders. He added, interpreted as it ought to be interpreted, the Constitution is a glorious liberty document. He wrote, the Constitution, according to its plain reading, and I define the presentation of a single pro-slavery clause in it. On the other hand, it will be found to contain principles and purposes entirely hostile to the existence of slavery. And I'll close with this. This is... 1857, Douglas responding to the Dred Scott decision. I base my sense of the certain overthrow of slavery in part upon the nature of the American government, the Constitution, the tendencies of the age, and the character of the American people. I know of no soil better adopted to the growth of reform than American soil. I know of no country where the conditions for effecting great changes in the settled order of things for the development of right ideas of liberty and humanity are more favorable than here in these United States. The Constitution, as well as the Declaration of Independence and the sentiments of the founders of the Republic, give us a platform broad enough and strong enough to support the most comprehensive plans for the freedom and elevation of all the people of this country without regard to color, class, or crime. America may have violated its founding principles to the detriment of our national soul, but we have striven to overcome those errors. The left would have us believe otherwise, that we're still fundamentally evil. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. We'll be talking more about this project right after this break. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here at the bottom of Hour One, live from New York, the Freedom Hut in the not-so-free New York. We've been talking, and we're going to spend this full hour talking about the 1619 Project because, because I think it's so essential to understand the importance, the criticality of the left's view of history being put forth how it manifests itself in our politics, and also what it means for the country. If you view our history as one which paints the nation as fundamentally immoral, evil, of course you're going to justify your revolution because it's the only moral, virtuous, just thing to do. Social justice would require turning all of these institutions on their head if they're fundamentally immoral, stemming from a fundamentally immoral institution. What I tried to do before this last break 
was layout of view of the founding that conflicts with the view that's put forth by the 1619 Project writers. The reason I did that is because if you get the founding wrong, then everything else in their theory falls also. And it's important to get the history right. It's imperative to get the history right. If you hate your national narrative, how can you love your country? How can you defend it, ultimately? Unless you are defending something that is fundamentally transformed. And that is how, incidentally, the progressives are able to paint their patriotism as truly being patriotic and in standing with the founders. Because it's revolutionary, right? It's progressing towards what they, progressives, define as our actual values and principles. Rather than the fact that in reality, what they're putting forth is a regressive system. Someone who I think agrees with my take on this, at least to a degree, and who sought to take the 1619 Project folks to task for their portrayal of modern conservatism and its relationship to the institution of slavery, is John Daniel Davidson. John is a senior correspondent at The Federalist, and he wrote a great piece titled The Ghost of John C. Calhoun Haunts Today's American Life. And John joins us right now. John, thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. So I found your piece to be very provocative, telling a needed corrective to what we get from the left. And I should note here that you were taking to task Jamel Bowie, one of the leading lights on the left and one of the leading writers in this 1619 project, who attacked me personally for my tweet when I wrote, quote, contrary to its stated goals, it appears the purpose of the 1619 project is to delegitimize America and further divide and demoralize its citizenry. Do you see the 1619 Project as I do? I do. I've been listening, and the way you've described it, I think, is very accurate in every way. And I should add that, you know, Jamel Bowie, for as many flaws as his argument had uh, in the 1619 Project, his response to you on Twitter was shameful and unfortunately uh, very typical of the way that he interacts with critics. Well, I appreciate that. And and look, I think it says something when you strike a chord that requires yeah. a, a personal attack when you're making an argument on substantive grounds. And I think it reflects kind of where the left is and also their lack of actual intellectual rigor when it comes to this, which you bring out in your article. So unpack Bowie's argument and then your counter to it. Yeah, Bowie essentially is making an argument that the style of politics that is practiced by the modern-day Republican Party is more or less an incarnation of the political philosophy of John C. Calhoun. Calhoun, of course, was the architect of secession, the architect of the Confederacy. Uh, he laid the philosophical groundwork for the South to be able to secede from the Union and uh, defended slavery as a positive good. Um, so, so Bowie's argument is that the kind of no holds bar, uh, you know, rough and tumble politics of of our current political situation on the right, only only in the Republican Party, can be traced to John C. Calhoun's support for slavery. If that sounds like a ridiculous argument to you, I assure your listeners it is a ridiculous argument. Um, but he he attempts to make it anyway. Um, 
and specifically points to Mitch McConnell's use of the filibuster during the Obama presidency with judicial nominees as evidence of a latent Calhounism in the modern GOP. I think it bears noting, of course, as an aside, that you you cast the left as uh, as John Calhoun haunting them. Well, look, in terms of nullification, I mean, how would you define a sanctuary city? Is that not a nullification style exactly. policy? Exactly. And that and that is the thrust of my argument. This is an argument that I've made before at the Federalist, and it, it always drives people on the left crazy because um, it's sort of, you know, Caliban's horror of seeing himself in the mirror, right? Uh, they, they can't accept and they don't want to accept the legacy of John C. Calhoun, uh, but that is their legacy. And, and let me explain why quickly. Uh, John C. Calhoun disagreed with the founders and he was very explicit about that. He was looking for a new philosophical basis uh, on which to base the American regime. He rejected the natural law that the founders of the, of the, of the country espoused. He rejects uh, uh, the rights, the, the immutable rights of man. He rejected the, the basis of social and political organization on which the constitutional system was built. And instead, he tried to introduce these new ideas that were based on kind of faddish 19th century science and Darwinism, um, essentially enabling him to argue contra the founders that slavery was a positive good and that it was part and parcel. It was a foundational necessity to the American regime, which incidentally is what the New York Times is arguing with their 1619 project. Uh, But the similarity between the modern progressive and John C. Calhoun is that they both reject the founding, they reject natural law, they reject the constitutional system uh, that our country was built on, and they want to replace it with something else. And of course, the Declaration and the Constitution and our founding yep. was incompatible with the, with, the, with the practice of slavery. It completely undermines it. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And, and, that's, and that really, I think, is a point of disagreement. I think the, the New York Times and the 1619 Project writers would say, oh, no, the, uh, it's not that uh, the Constitution and the Declaration and the founding are incompatible with slavery. It's that they were being cynical and they were lying. And they weren't, and, and they were lying through their teeth in kind of a wink, wink, nod, nod. But the problem with that historical interpretation is that it doesn't explain any of the things that actually happened in American history, uh, especially during the founding era, where you have example after example. And a lot of people on the right, including some of the Federalists, have done a good job this week of going through the historical record and showing that. Contrary to a lot of the claims in the 1619 Project, uh, there was a very robust movement during the founding era to eradicate slavery, and, and that many of the founders, including some in the South, saw that slavery was incompatible with the new American regime and knew that it was on its way out and it was just a matter of time. And it wasn't until the second generation of American statesmen and leaders came in with John C. Calhoun in the 1820s who, who decided, no, we're or not, we can't get rid of slavery because of uh, these, these new uh, industrial pressures on, on southern, uh, the southern industry, and we have to come up with a new philosophical basis for preserving slavery. To do that, we've got to attack the founders. I, I'm just curious, in your reading, can you understand this argument at the, at the, in the final analysis, ultimately to be anything other than 
this is a way to kind of smear conservatives who are actually competitive politically. In other words, it's the same thing of, you know, you're a racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, et cetera, being applied to people whose views you disagree with. In this case, it's trying to intellectualize the fact that conservatives who are actually competitive politically are, are racist and thus fundamentally illegitimate. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely what it is. I think that's very well put. I would also add, I think that is, uh, that is what Jamal Bowie has built his career on for the most part is, uh, is imputing racist motives to political and ideological opponents. In this piece that we're talking about in the New York Times, he all but says uh, that the Republican Party from Mitch McConnell to the uh, state Republican parties of Wisconsin and Michigan uh, and all over the country are racist and pursue racist policies and uh, engage in uh, politics in the spirit and with the inspiration of John C. Calhoun. The the attempt is a kind of uh, short circuit or shortcut around having to actually hash out these intellectual and historical arguments. And I think it's telling that the left always goes here, always goes to accusations of racism and bigotry, uh, because I think uh, somewhere deep inside they know that their arguments uh, uh, can't stand on their own. I would also suggest that the party that has now made an art out of Borking and Thomasing and Kavanaughing, trying to attack the Republicans for cutthroat politics is really quite amazing. And I would suggest is just another example of the projection that comes from the left. It's amazing. It's amazing to, to think that, uh, that that Democrats and people on the left would, would look at the past 10 or 15 years and think, oh, the Republicans are the extreme ones. Uh, you know, we have to remember how people talked about uh, Mitt Romney in 2012, of all people, uh, that he, here was this racist, misogynist, uh, you know, robber baron uh, who was who the worst thing to ever happen to America, that he was nominated to be the president of a major political party, Mitt Romney. Uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's what the left did, and they, and they really poisoned the well um, of, of our political discourse throughout the Obama years. And I think they did it because they thought that there was going to be an unbroken ascendancy of the Democratic Party and the progressive left in this country, and Trump's election upended all of that. So in the couple minutes we have left, I want to be fair to Bowie here, probably fair in a way he would not be to us. And I want to quote from the conclusion of his essay in the 1619 Project and, and get your response to it. He writes, and I quote, you could make the case that none of this has anything to do with slavery and slaveholder ideology. You could argue that it has nothing to do with race at all, that it's simply an aggressive effort to secure conservative victories. But the tenor of an argument, the shape and nature of an opposition movement these things matter. The goals may be colorblind, but the methods of action, the attacks on the legitimacy of non-white political actors, the casting of rival political majorities as unrepresentative, the drive to nullify democratically elected governing coalitions are clearly downstream of a style of extreme political combat that came to fruition in the defense of human bondage. How do you respond to that? I think that you could uh, easily make an argument that the tactics and and the methods of the abolitionist movement in the North uh, were just as cutthroat, just as revolutionary, uh, just just as uh, as no holds bar as as those of the South. Uh, you know, uh, political warfare uh, on both sides is nothing new in this country. I think 
he hits on at the end, and I think it, it is a sort of a moment whether he meant it as one or not, he concedes that he hasn't really make it, made his case, uh, and, and, he, and he unwittingly hits upon the actual explanation uh, for, for, for uh, the things that he describes in the modern Democratic Party. Uh, the, the, it doesn't have anything to do with race. It has everything to do with securing conservative victories uh, and, and doing the best you can in, in a really tough political environment. Uh, the fact that he chalks it up to race, I think, says more about, about his motives and the motives of the left than it does of uh, the Republican Party and, and the right. So, so in about 30 seconds to kind of wrap it up, how would you describe what the stakes are if the 1619 project is to prevail in the academy, in the culture? What is at stake here? I think a lot is at stake, and I think it's telling that the uh, 1619 project is also rolling out materials and curricula for uh, public schools and for school-aged kids and high schoolers to be able to engage with uh, American history on the terms set by the 1619 project. this is something that conservatives have said for a long time, uh, but we're starting to see it more and more now. What starts in the academy, what starts uh, in the Ivy League, doesn't stay there. It filters out into the rest of society, into public schools, into the media, into professional organizations in corporate America. And uh, and so I think we need to take it seriously, and it, it deserves every effort to push back against it uh, and to persuade people that this is the wrong way to think about American history and especially about the American founding. We've been speaking with John Daniel Davidson, a senior correspondent at The Federalist, and I urge you to read his exceptional piece, The Ghost of John C. Calhoun Haunts Today's American Left, over at The Federalist. John, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Be back right after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Just have a couple minutes left here in hour one. In hour two, we'll be talking about U.S.-China policy, looking around the world at some of the threats and opportunities for the U.S. But I did want to talk and close with just a brief discussion on the importance of understanding why the attack on those who would criticize this 1619 project is telling. It's not about me. I can deal with the blue checkmark brigade coming after me and calling me all sorts of names and attacking me as a person. But it's that they don't want to engage in a substantive debate. That's why when you say that a project is about XYZ, not a person, not an individual, not a group of people, but a project is fundamentally, in my view, wrong detrimental to the society, when they attack you personally, it's because they don't want to make a substantive argument. These people are engaging in a sort of narcissistic projection and a virtue signaling. When the social justice warrior mob forms, it's about feeling good about themselves and knowing that you're a bad person, they're opposing a bad person, and that makes them good. So when they claim that my response was in bad faith, they were the ones responding and operating in bad faith. And that's a real problem as a society when you can't debate anything on the merits and a person is de facto either evil or good and thus right or wrong based upon their political ideology. What this really comes down to ultimately is that the left, the progressives, they want their cultural revolution to go on unimpeded and they're counting on people not to fight back on the merits. 
In this case, the Times wants to change history. They want this incorporated into curricula around the country. And if national self-loathing predominates, who is going to defend this country? You'd feel the need to overthrow it. Anyone who's not a progressive would be a fundamentally horrible person. That's the purpose of the 1619 Project. Progressivism demands the overthrow, and the 1619 Project is just a part of it, overthrowing our institutions. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Thanks for taking the time to join us on this busy Friday night. All right, well, probably the biggest story in the news today is concerning the President Trump's and American policy vis-a-vis the Chinese. And he put out a couple of tweets that I would argue, and this, this may be an overstatement, but I don't think it is. He wrote in part, our country has lost stupidly trillions of dollars with China over many years. They have stolen our intellectual property at a rate of hundreds of billions of dollars a year, and they want to continue. I won't let that happen. We don't need China, and frankly, would be far better off without them. The vast amounts of money made and stolen by China from the United States year after year for decades will and must stop. Our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China. He goes on from there. What he is saying effectively is American businesses should look to completely restructure themselves in many cases. China has been a huge source of labor. Uh, Factories, U.S.-owned factories there, multinational corporations have substantial operations there. China's obviously a huge market for American goods and services. And President Trump is threatening, basically, to collapse China's economy, in effect. This is this is a these are radical words relative to where the establishment has been. And of course, this was in response to the Chinese government today arguing that actually putting back reimposing tariffs on, I believe, 75 billion dollars worth of U.S. goods and services to be purchased. So there's an escalation here. And what the president is saying is enough of this cosmetic sort of measures. We're going to threaten the whole thing. Here to join me is someone who has spoken at length and an expert on U.S.-China policy, also someone responsible for helping craft the Trump administration's policy, and that's Rob Spalding. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He served in senior positions of strategy and diplomacy within both the state and defense departments for more than 26 years, and he most recently served, as I mentioned, as senior director for strategy for President Trump, where he was the chief architect of the framework for national competition in the Trump administration's national security strategy, which, as I've mentioned at length before, was monumental in that it flipped on its head the idea that that has underlied our U.S.-China policy for decades, that economic liberalization would lead to political liberalization, when that clearly has not happened. Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's get right to it. What do you make of the president's tweets? Well, I think he's finally realized that the Chinese don't want to have a deal. You know, I think they back when they tore up the 50 pages of the 150-page agreement they'd negotiated with Lighthizer, they had essentially decided, worst case scenario, they were willing to decouple the Chinese economy from the American economy. I think the president has realized this finally and has decided that we need to actually uh, do the same. And, and the most important thing that I think he's realized is that while American companies, probably 40 percent of them today, they're starting to move their supply chains to other places, they're not moving them to the United States. And so he's 
really focus on how do we get those companies to start reshoring manufacturing for the American people. As a practical matter, what does it mean when the president says that great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China? Well, as a practical matter, I think he's putting them on notice that um, there are going to be incentives for those companies that move their manufacturing to the United States, and there's going to be disincentives for those that don't. And those disincentives will probably most likely come in the form of tariffs on those companies that choose not to move their manufacturing operations. Now, one of the things I tweeted right after that was that the president and, and the administration need to think about using the Defense Production Act, Title III, and other incentives to actually incentivize these companies to move manufacturing back to the United States, not only because it'll help grow jobs in the economy, but things like uh, circuit boards for F-35s can be manufactured in the United States. Is it fair to think about, and and I've thought about this analogy a little bit, uh, for example, if you look at Iran's constitution, and bear with me on this kind of thread, if you look at Iran's constitution, it says that their economy is dedicated to expanding their Islamic revolution. And I see something parallel with the Chinese Communist Party, where it's very clear that basically all of their businesses are dual-use businesses. That is, they have civilian applications, but in reality, it is all about strengthening their regime at the end of the day. Um, What do you think it would mean if we were to decouple? And do you see that sort of parallel of, in some sense, the Chinese economy for the Chinese government is an element of their competition against the U.S. And it's not because they just want to be prosperous. It's because they want to be dominant. In other words, the economy serves a strategic purpose rather than one for the good of the Chinese people. Yeah, I think that's what um, what the national security strategy tried to point out was that economics and information actually were the competitive space of the 21st century. Currently, you know, people are complaining about the tariffs harming free trade. In reality, China doesn't have an, a market economy. They don't practice free trade. In fact, they have a closed economy. They have a protectionist uh, slant in their own economy, preventing foreign companies from actually making a profit or doing well or even competing on an equal basis, while at the same time they subsidize their companies who are protected at home to go out and be dominant abroad. So you're exactly right. They grow these global champions as a mean of exerting influence over the globe. They realize that military uh, you know, might and warfare had, had really lost its usefulness in the era, in the post-nuclear era, and certainly in post-Cold War era with globalization and the Internet, it provo- that openness provided them opportunities to essentially tr- turn those strengths, those typical strengths of open uh, democracies, into vulnerabilities. Leaving aside the question of whether any sort of trade pact that deals with the myriad issues, whether it's intellectual property theft or the disadvantaging of foreign companies in mainland China, or any of the other ways in which it's effectively an unfair bargain that exists today, on top of China's actual espionage and stealing uh, of hundreds of millions of dollars worth of technology or forcing companies to bring it there. Uh, Leaving aside that enforceability question, why would it be in China's interest to come to any sort of deal if they believe that nixing any deal means that the president is a one-term president? Well, I think they're under the false uh, mistaken assumption that they can actually make their closed economy actually innovative. 
they've been able to essentially access innovation, talent, technology, and capital to, from the West in order to grow their economy and to increase their technological superiority. And so I think making a deal would have allowed them some more space to create the kind of dominance that they're looking for. And unfortunately, I think they've shot themselves in the foot because as we de- begin to decouple, their ability to continue to grow that economy, to, inc- to continue to advance their science and technology is going to be severely crippled. Now, financial markets, uh, as expected, have been quite jittery every time the president sort of flexes America's muscles relative to China and every time China responds with its own bellicosity. If you were advising the president, how would you describe to him the way that he should make the case to American businesses that it is in the U.S. national interest and their own financial self-interest and the fiduciary duty that they have to their shareholders to actually support a China policy that really imp- has real teeth and actually brings commerce back to the U.S.? Well, the problem with business is that they need stability. They need certainty. Currently, with the tariffs and the trade war, we have uncertainty. So the first thing I would tell them to do is make the p- tariffs permanent. Give some certainty to the businesses that you're not going to pull the rug out from under them when they've made a $90 million investment in a new factory in the United States. Then help them a little bit. Use the Defense Production Act and Title III, the authorities that the Defense Department has, to build up the industrial base to help you know, offer loan incentives or even grants to these companies that are willing to take a chance on an investment. And then go around and begin to, as they're already doing, Uh, improve the trade agreements that we have around the world with all our allies and partners so that, you know, we promote uh, labor laws that are consistent with what what is currently in the United States, environmental laws, protections that are currently in the United States, and let's level the playing field for trade. So rather than offshoring your manufacturing to places of high labor or low labor protections and low environmental protections, make sure that those levels are at the same level in the United States so there's not an incentive just to go out and pollute and exploit. We've been speaking with Rob Spalding, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a chief architect of the Framework for National Competition in the Trump administration's national security strategy. And we've been talking about Trump's U.S.-China policy broadly. We're going to take a short break right now, but when we come back with Rob, we are going to discuss Hong Kong, where it fits in in terms of U.S. national interest, and how it should fit into the president's U.S.-China policy. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Back after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And as I mentioned in the last segment, we'd come back with Rob Spalding. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a chief architect of the national security, a national competition part of the president's national security strategy. Rob, thanks so much for coming back. Thank you. So... We have seen in recent weeks million-plus people marches in the streets of Hong Kong, a a massive percentage of Hong Kong's total population. And what folks are marching over, at least from a narrow perspective, originally was an extradition law whereby Hong Kong, in effect, would agree to send citizens who China claimed committed crimes back to mainland China, potentially. And I'm simplifying, of course, here, this extradition. And this fits under the framework of what was called... Uh, the One Nation, Two Systems policy implemented since 1997, 
when it was agreed upon that in 50 years, that is in 2047, Hong Kong again would be fully subsumed by China. So first of all, talk a little bit about that extradition policy. What would that have meant for freedom for the people of Hong Kong? Well, essentially, you could have been uh, sequestered and then taken back to the mainland to face prosecution. You know, and it wasn't just, you know, are you a protesting student? Is It could be uh, just that your business partner on the mainland uh, had, a, had a, an issue with you and so was able to, you know, file uh, a lawsuit in the mainland and, and have that serve uh, in Hong Kong and have you extradited. So it, it actually really impacted anybody doing business, anybody traveling between the two, um, between the mainland and Hong Kong, or anybody that, that in, in, in any way uh, became a problem for the Chinese Communist Party to the extent that they could essentially rendition them back to uh, the mainland to face uh, prosecution. And, of course, there's no, there's no rule of law. There's no due process there. And so essentially they were violating the one country, two systems because Hong Kong has rule of law. They have due process. And they have been encroaching on Hong Kong's liberty for a number of years now. There's been sort of a creeping hand of power from the Chinese Communist Party where, for example, the slates of candidates for office in Hong Kong need to be approved by the Chinese Communist Party. They've cracked down on certain booksellers who put out materials that the Chinese Communist Party find essentially threaten their ideology. Do you see that effectively the Chinese Communist Party is its grip continues to tighten on Hong Kong, and where does it ultimately end? Are we going to talk about one country, one system decades before 2047? Well, I think we're definitely moving to that um, to that state. You know, as, you know, uh, led, or administrators like Carrie Lam are chosen and pre-vetted by the Communist Party, this was already occurring. The, you know, protesters, which have the support of most of the population, uh, where you've seen, you know, upwards of 2 million people uh, and a population of 8 million marching in the street, you know, I think there's, they are in it for the long haul. Of course, you know, they're sitting next to the mainland with, you know, a population of 1.4 billion in the might of the People's Liberation Army. So at some point, I believe Xi Jinping is going to get fed up and, and concerned, more importantly, with this spreading into the mainland. So they're going to move in. And at that point, it will, it will cease to be one country, two systems. Of course, the leadership of uh, China has enormous assets in Hong Kong, and they're, they're really concerned about losing that. And so it's probably they're going to delay as long as they can, but there's going to be a point where uh, Xi Jinping is going to have to act in order to preserve his, his rule. Now, Hong Kong engenders widespread support on a bipartisan basis because it's a liberal, dynamic, free market oriented place. It's really an amazing place. I urge all of our listeners to go before it is subsumed by China the way it seems to be going right now. At the same time, there will be many folks who will say, look, the U.S. is overextended. What is our national interest in this situation? Should we intervene in any sort of way? Uh, What would you say to those who are wary of the U.S.? intervening, whether at a diplomatic level or beyond with respect to Hong Kong? Well, you know, 
The U.S. has traditionally been the beacon of freedom for the world. And, you know, after the end of the Cold War, we, as you mentioned earlier, stopped doing that because we believed that open markets would lead to wealth and wealth would lead to democracy. And essentially, if we just opened up uh, to totalitarian regimes, they'd eventually get rich and democratize. Of course, we know now that that's a failed theory and that actually it's important for the United States to be very vocal about what it believes in in terms of human rights and rule of law and civil liberties and democratic principles, because at the same time, the Chinese Communist Party is being very vocal about its brand of democracy. And essentially what it says is, we'll give you, the Chinese people, economic freedom, but you forfeit all other freedoms. Now, the way they've actually been able to do that is by being a parasitic economy and taking from the open uh, the open world in order to, to provide for their own people economic freedom while they suppress the other freedoms. It doesn't scale as a social model to the rest of the world. It, it is really only about how you have this zero-sum, you know, uh, effort going on in one country to essentially take from the rest. So it's not a scalable uh, social model for governments for the rest of the world, but of course, China's marketing it as that, and we haven't been vocal about standing up against that. So in 30 seconds, what would you recommend to the president about what our policy should be with respect to Hong Kong at this juncture? Well, we should support the protesters, say that they're going for human rights, democracy, and their freedom, and that America stands for freedom, and we stand with the protesters. We've been speaking with Rob Spalding. He's a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and one of the architects of the Trump administration's national security strategy. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And, and this has been a particularly busy news day on the China front and what I've spoken about as potentially the most important consequential issue on President Trump's agenda, which is fundamentally reorienting U.S.-China policy towards U.S. national interest. And of course, uh, there's much hand-wringing about this, manifests itself in all sorts of ways. We've talked about the economic element of this, but from the Chinese perspective, information warfare is one of the grounds in which they compete against us. And there are very few sources who are willing to take them on, to confront the Chinese Communist Party, its totalitarian ideology, and the threat that it poses. And meanwhile, China engages in all sorts of information operations overseas, many of them quite subtle. We've spoken before on this program about the Confucius Institutes. And if you aren't familiar with that, I urge you to check out my interview with Rochelle Peterson of the National Association of Scholars on those Confucius Institutes, which put forth essentially Chinese Communist Party propaganda in Western schools and schools around the world. They also, of course, have their own media sources worldwide, and they seek to influence Western media as well. One of the few outlets out there that stands as a counterweight to the Chinese Communist Party is the Epic Times, which has grown in stature in recent years, in no small part due to their dogged pursuit of the Spygate narrative that counters the Russiagate narrative. And of course, this has led to substantial criticism from the left. And this week, the left sort of response via their own media sources was perhaps most prominently on display through NBC News doing a deep investigative dive in which they tried to attack 
the Epic Times, its roots, its business model, etc. Joining me now to discuss this whole kerfuffle, NBC News investigation and beyond, is Stephen Gregory, publisher of the U.S. Language Edition of the Epic Times. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, Ben. It's a pleasure to be on. Okay, so let's take this story back a little bit. You were approached and your publication was approached by investigators from NBC News several months back. And what did they say was the purpose of the investigation and what did they ask of you? They wanted to do a deep dive into uh, our growth with uh, Facebook advertisements. But what they asked us uh, about was much more than our Facebook advertising. They wanted to know about the beliefs of our staff. They wanted to know if our staff shared living quarters. They wanted to know uh, all kinds of details about uh, who works for the Epoch Times and, and what we do. And we wrote an editorial pointing out that these questions were inappropriate, that uh, NBC was transparently trying to set the stage for a hit piece. We weren't going to cooperate. Now, have you been approached in the past by other publications asking these sorts of questions? Um, from time to time, reporters approach us and want to do a, uh, want to do a story about uh, want to do a story about what the Epoch Times is. We are uh, a unique publication in many ways. We've got a unique voice, and recently we've had a lot of influence. But this approach by NBC was uh, unusual. This this was this was reporters who transparently had an agenda and and wanted to set the table for for trying to damage us. As you mentioned, one of their primary focuses was the use of Facebook, the way that NBC News portrayed it in terms of the Epic Times effectively cheerleading for the Trump administration. And they wrote, and I'll quote from one of their articles, the small New York-based nonprofit news outlet has spent more than $1.5 million on about 11,000 pro-Trump advertisements in the last six months, according to data from Facebook's advertising archive, more than any organization outside of the Trump campaign itself, and more than most Democratic presidential candidates have spent on their own campaigns Unquote. How do you respond to that characterization? Oh, that is so deeply dishonest at, at different levels. I mean, first of all, these are subscription advertisements. What we do is we, we do lively videos promoting our recent articles, and we put them on uh, Facebook ads, and they've been very successful. It's got nothing to do with promoting Donald Trump. However, as you mentioned in your intro, we have uh, made a specialty out of uh, uh, looking into the Spygate narrative. So naturally, and that's been, that has been what our readers have particularly been interested in. So naturally, those videos have often focused on Spygate, and uh, the... Uh, uh, these reporters want to present that as being pro-Trump because it uncovers a uh, uh, uncovers a conspiracy among Obama officials to try and take down the Trump presidency. Uh, what you have here is a failure by NBC to uh, come to terms with their uh, gross failure to cover uh, what I regard as the most important political scandal in our nation's history. They completely missed the boat, and not only did they miss the boat, for, for most of the last two years they knew that there was nothing there. Uh, we got the story right, and now they want to use that against us and label it a conspiracy theory. It's, it's an upside-down world in, in, in this article. And the way that they kind of portray their reporting is that by harping on the Facebook ad spend of Epic Times, 
This has led Facebook to, in NBC News' words, ban the Epic Times. They write, Facebook has banned the Epic Times, a conservative news outlet that spent more money on pro-Trump Facebook advertisements than any group other than the Trump campaign. It continues, the decision follows an NBC News report that the Epic Times had shifted its spending on Facebook in the last month, seemingly in an effort to obfuscate its connection to some two million worth of ads that promoted the president and conspiracy theories about his political enemies. Leaving aside their editorialization there of your reportage, has Epic Times been banned from Facebook as a result of their investigation? Well, I think a question that we have to ask is whether NBC orchestrated this with Facebook. Um, face, Facebook, without explanation, uh, stopped our advertising on their site in July. We asked them why. They wouldn't give us a reason. They'd approved all the ads we were running, and so it simply didn't make any sense. Yes, we began running ads on uh, other Facebook pages that we created for that purpose, but the ads were advertising subscriptions of the Epoch Times. They didn't obfuscate anything. There'd be no point in having an advertisement for your newspaper if you didn't make it clear that the, that was an advertisement for your newspaper. And so the the charge that the charge that NPC making just falls flat on its face as soon as you know the facts. And of course, there's just the fundamental underlying premise, which is if those ads were ineffective, then you would stop issuing them. So clearly you're appealing to an audience. And then it also seems that there's this uh, sort of a- attempt to cast your reportage as political speech that therefore ought to be regulated. Do you see it that way? Um, this is a freedom of the press issue. I mean, NBC disagrees with us about uh, our, our coverage and they want to shut us down. That is my, that's in one sense, I believe, what is going on here. Uh, so, uh, yes, this has to do with the disagreement about uh, what the facts are and how to report them. Um, ads only work if you have a product that people want. And uh, people have, once they've come to know our product, that we've become very popular, we've grown very rapidly. And that's because they see in us a news outlet that provides highlights truth in reporting. We, we're, we, we want to provide uh, the highest standard of journalism. And this might make other outlets uncomfortable when if you have, if you have reporting that doesn't have an agenda, reporting that isn't trying to, trying to twist the facts to reach, to reach a, a preconceived outcome. So I think that's part of the background. But I also think your intro tied together something else, which is uh, the Chinese communist influence in this country. NBC Universal's got a multi-billion dollar project in Beijing. Comcast, its parent country, is, is, is broadcasting CCTV. Um, Facebook is flirted with the Chinese communist regime. Uh, this is all in the background. One can't know what the precise connections are, but we have to ask whether the Chinese communist regime isn't, isn't, uh, uh, isn't playing the piper here and the NBC is dancing to their tune. Yeah, and so what essentially you're suggesting is that at least it bears scrutiny whether or not there's been some sort of coordination, um, whether overt or implicit, between both Facebook and NBC News and then also Chinese Communist Party influence on one or both of those firms. I want to ask you, what price has your publication paid for opposing the Chinese Communist Party in the past? We have... They have tried to shut us down since we began. We, when we first started, we had bureaus of journalists inside China. We started in the summer of 2000 
in the fall of 2000, within a few days, all those bureaus were shut down. Um, several of our staff members served multi-year, multi-year terms in prison, some of them 10-year terms in prison. They were treated, as you might imagine, quite brutally. There's a very touching story about one chief editor. His, uh, he was in prison when his son was three years old. Two years later, his son came to see him, and his father's hair had all turned white. His face was full of wrinkles, this 35-year-old man. His son took one look at him and screamed and said, you're not my father, and ran away. This is, this is an image of what the Communist Party is doing to our journalists. So initially, yes, we, we have had ter- played a terrible price. And since then, uh, the Communist Party officials here in this country and around the world have tried to block advertisers from dealing with us. The, there have been very suspicious incidents where our newspaper, newspapers have been destroyed. Here in Manhattan, recently, several newspaper boxes were burned. Uh, uh, people who write for us, you know, if they're Chinese, they will get un- 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 unwanted calls from the Chinese consulate. Uh, there's a long list. And, uh, but we have, we have survived, and we survived and thrived in spite of the communist regime's attempt to shut us down. I view this incident with Facebook as, as very suspicious, and it looks like part of a pattern. We've been speaking with Stephen Gregory, publisher of the U.S. Language Edition of the Epoch Times. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. And this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, back just after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. All right, we were just talking about China. I spent almost an hour on China, and it's worth many hours. And in my view, it is the seminal issue when it comes to not just the Trump presidency, but really the future of America from a foreign policy and national security perspective. But sometimes you need a little levity as well. So I want to do a bit of a jump ball on stories here as we wrap up hour two. First one being proof that in government you always fail upwards. Andy McCabe is back in the news today. Disgraced former DOJ official. He's landed on his feet and signed on as a CNN contributor. That, in my view, is a heck of a consolation prize for failing to execute a coup against the president of the United States. As one publication noted, McCabe was fired last year after lying to the bureaus, the FBI's inspector general, at least four times related to abuse of power at the agency while he was in charge. It was revealed that McCabe was involved in spying on the Trump campaign and in efforts to derail the investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails while at the bureau. In February, McCabe admitted to discussing a coup with top national security officials to remove Trump from office. So Andy McCabe getting a nice payday today from CNN and joining a long list of other folks who were dedicated to bringing down a president in the national security, foreign policy, law enforcement world. And you just have to ask the question, who is going to pay a price here? Is there going to be justice? And we know that Inspector General Horowitz's report is due any week now. I suspect that like the one that came before it, it will probably set up the predicate for criminal action to be taken. And then there will not be justice put forth. But let's see what happens. We know that the 
Attorney General Barr-led investigation of much more broadly the corruption within the national security, foreign policy, law enforcement community under his purview is ongoing. And let's hope, let's hope and pray that he gets to the bottom of what transpired during the last election. But realize we're talking about this. We're almost in the next election. I mean, the cycle has already started. And still... You have all these people on the Trump side who have been prosecuted. Their lives have been ruined. Even if they never were indicted, even if they never served jail time, they've racked up legal bills worth tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars trying to defend themselves on the predicate of something that should have never existed in the first place, an investigation that should have never existed in the first place. What about the folks on the other side? Let's hope that the investigation of the investigators leads to actual justice because absent that justice, this is going to happen again. And it bears noting that our intelligence capabilities are more sophisticated than they've ever been before. And if that apparatus is corrupted, we lose our freedom. All of us lose our freedom. This transcends party. This gets to the fundamental principles about due process, about the separate, about completely separating politics from national security and law enforcement. You cannot corrupt national security and law enforcement. Then we become a banana republic, if you can even call it a republic at that point. Okay, story number two, I saw this headline earlier today. Rashida Tlaib claims that Trump goes after her because of her ethnicity, unquote. Is that really the reason why? It wasn't because she screamed out, Let's impeach the MFR. It isn't because she opposes every last policy that he puts forth. You know, it's really amazing. Tlaib talks about being such a strong person, a strong personality, unafraid, unabashed. She always claims that people are trying to shut her up, yet she's always talking. And she always claims that she's the victim, even though she's always attacking someone else. And of course, by raising this concept of, well, Trump is doing it because he's going after her because of her ethnicity, which, by the way, what she's really saying is he's racist, Islamophobic, bigoted. She's trying to protect herself with this Islamophobic veil. The whole purpose of it is to chill dissent, is to shut down anyone who would criticize her. And that's why you have to debate on the merits and you can't be stifled. Okay, last story. This one's a doozy. And I'm just going to read a tweet here from Hale Razor, at Hale underscore Razor. Quote, at a certain point, you've made enough money, unquote. That came from Barack Obama. He attributes that to guy who got a $65 million book deal, then bought a seven-bedroom, 7,000-square-foot Martha's Vineyard mansion on 29 acres worth $15 million. That's right. Barack and Michelle Obama just bought a mega mansion in Martha's Vineyard. Obama 08, this is from another tweet. When you spread the wealth around, it's good for everybody. 2010, at a certain point, you've made enough money. 2019, I'll take the $15 million Martha's Vineyard Mansion. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here on The Buck Sexton Show. Back after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And you'll recall in hour one at my open, we talked a little bit about the 1619 Project, which gave a little bit of the of a flavor for the ideology that is animating the left today. But the practical consequences of that ideology and how that ideology actually plays itself out leads to all manner of political squabbles. And and one of the areas in which there is the most acrimony 
is, of course, in the Supreme Court and the federal courts more broadly, where the Trump administration has been tremendously successful at nominating and confirming a number of justices to help reshape the courts, hopefully, for decades to come and counter the progressive ethos that we spoke about in the opening. And today I'm joined by someone who has been deeply involved in these battles, these confirmation battles at the Supreme Court and other levels as well. Of course, Carrie Severino, who is the chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network and also co-author of the great new book, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation and the Future of the Court, authored with uh, my colleague at The Federalist, Molly Hemingway. Carrie, thanks so much for coming on and it's great to have you. It's great to be here. So I want to talk a little bit today about uh, the legacy of the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, and we are seeing the continued attempt to Kavanaugh future appointees to the federal courts. And of course, this started with Clarence Thomas and before Clarence Thomas with Robert Bork. Uh, It's clear that the the Democrats view the courts as just another political realm uh, where they have to engage in political warfare, and that is just part of the hurly-burly of what our political system is. Kavanaugh took it to new heights, but we're even seeing it at lower courts. So, for example, in recent weeks, it seems that there's been an attempt to smear a Second Circuit Court nominee, Stephen Menashe. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so this started with Rachel Maddow taking issue with him on MSNBC in really what I think was ultimately an anti-Semitic attack. And he had an article he had written about the state of Israel trying to explain to critics who say you can't be a liberal democracy and also have this Jewish character to it and trying to explain that, no, there's actually something about having um, that, and he he used the word ethno-nationalism, but that, that having a common sense of principles that that uh, animates you is, is actually something that is, is common to liberal democracies and can function within that system. She turned it on its head, made it sound like he was a white nationalist and was saying that you can't function in a country at all unless you have some kind of racial purity. Far from it, um, simply he actually was talking about a, a cultural identity that far surpassed um, race. He's talking about Jewish people. Uh, coming into the state of Israel, who are from everywhere from Ethiopia to Iraq, like his family is from, to uh, to uh, former Soviet countries, like his wife's family is from. So this is someone who actually, in his own life and experience, has a very broad and diverse background. Um, it's shocking what she is trying to do to that article of his, I think, to make him, to attack him and his nomination. And of course, that in practice and in theory, that argument about you can't be a democracy and a Jewish state, which has been raised since Israel passed its basic law uh, last year, something that's been, I believe last year, something that's been raised by many people on the left in America uh, in in recent months, Mm -hmm. including representatives Omar and Tlaib. And of course, it's undermined by the fact that the Declaration of Independence, if you go to it, uh, for Israel basically says that there's equal rights for all. Um, and, and, and effectively, a dynamic civil society is supported by the country's founding document. But even leaving that aside, this attempt to smear him as a white supremacist, effectively, if you take it to its logical conclusion, this idea of calling him a Nazi, just as folks on the left have called Benjamin Netanyahu a racist and, and the government a racist government, this perverse Holocaust inversion in effect, what you get to yeah. at the end of the day. Uh, This is really of a piece with the fact that those on the left have put religious tests on numerous nominees that Trump has put forth. Is that correct? 
Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, typically we have seen this in anti-Catholicism, but now apparently um, anti-Semitism is unfortunately seems to be coming back in vogue. And as you say, it's not it's not uh, limited to this case. Um, we've definitely seen that in some of those speeches from those representatives as well. And so, it, it, you know, it's, it's a real concern because there is a reason there are no religious tests for office in our Constitution. That kind of thing was anathema to the founders, and we, we absolutely don't want to be going down that line. Now, before we proceed to the next set of smears against uh, this nominee, Mr. Menashe, tell us a little bit about his qualifications for serving as a, on the second court, second circuit court, rather. Yeah, no, he he is an outstanding lawyer. He has been most recently in the um, in the office of the White House Counsel, but also has practiced uh, private practice. He's also worked at the Department of Education. So he's someone who, you know, when you talk to people just down the line, you'll hear people talking about how, how outstanding um, he is as a lawyer. And then also, and this kind of leads into some of the um, the further smears on him. He's someone who is a very strong conservative lifelong. So he wrote in college even um, for the Dartmouth Review, which is which was a very um, you know uh, important college paper, and at that time was was really doing a lot of important work, kind of trying to push back against some of the uh, PC movements on campus. But now, of course, everything you've done all the way back to uh, college and, and earlier is fair game, and I think the left is trying to make that, having a conservative position at that point in your life, also something that is um, anathema. And that's a real issue at the end of the day, isn't it? It's about what his ideology is, and these other attacks are really more about virtue signaling, putting up a facade of, well, this person is a horrible person, and thus they should be dinged on that basis. But in reality, it's about his ideology. Oh, yes, absolutely. They they don't want to have someone on the court who is going to be um, a conservative jurisprudentially, and that's because the left uh, has historically been very successful in using the courts to achieve its liberal ends. So it, I'm not saying we should have judges who are doing the opposite on the conservative side. We just want people who are going to be faithful to the law. But I think the prospect of losing that incredibly valuable tool that the left has had, so often judges have been willing to enact policies they couldn't get done in Congress simply by unelected uh, judges. And so uh, it's, it's threatening to them to have a judge who's going to simply uh, follow the law as it's written. If we continue down this path, and if Kavanaugh doesn't mark the most extreme aspect of resistance on the left, but it's actually just another data point in this slide down, uh, ultimately, how can conservatives, constitutionalists, originalists expect to compete in the future, given the fact that the other side engages in effectively unrestricted political warfare? Yeah, this is really shameful. I mean, I'm someone who argues you should have a, a, a vigorous debate about judges, but it should be a debate about their, their not just their qualifications, but their ideological uh, approach to the court, like their philosophy of judging. That's totally fair game. This is about smearing an individual, and this is just the same kind of thing we've seen time and again with all these other judges. So they're, they're not learning their lesson. I think ultimately at the end of the day, though, we have seen these judges are getting confirmed. So Brett Kavanaugh, confirmed. Amy Coney Barrett, confirmed. Um, Brian Bushner also confirmed. A lot of these people who have endured that, we are managing to get confirmed, and I think in many ways the American people are being very turned off by it. That's why some people were frustrated after the Kavanaugh confirmation, seeing what happened. That 
actually they turned out in the polls much higher than people expected. <laughs> Mitch McConnell said, "I couldn't, we couldn't get our people ginned up about this." And thank you to Democrats for, you know. Ra- ramping up GOP turnout, and I think that that has happened. So I hope that people will continue to uh, be outraged by the things that are happening, because that ultimately, unfortunately, is the only thing that will uh, potentially rein in uh, this kind of inappropriate action on the left. And I'm hoping that we don't see uh, very, I mean, this is this is an act of the media so far. I, I seriously hope we don't see senators who are also buying in some of this anti-Semitic and uh, and. and personally uh, smearing uh, behavior. Lastly, and there was news uh, just before we came to air tonight uh, regarding health problems of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and obviously she has had issues over the years, and then there's been intense speculation about, well, if Trump does uh, get to a point, another nominee, uh, another Supreme Court Justice, rather, uh, in her stead, who would he choose and how would it all transpire. Um, do you see that appointment being more acrimonious than what we saw with Justice Kavanaugh? Unfortunately, I do. When you look at and Molly and I looked at the history of Supreme Court nominations as we were working on justice on trial, you see that when the stakes are high for a seat, when there's a likelihood of changing the balance of, of, uh, um, of ideology and of philosophy on the court, that's when you say, see things get crazy. And the absolute rock bottom worst confirmation we saw in history was this past one, and that was just replacing a swing vote. Um, can you imagine if it were Justice Ginsburg that President Trump were replacing? I can't imagine the depth to which we would see the process sink. So I think it's so important uh, to hold people accountable for what happened last time and to make sure we go in with our eyes open and, and knowing that we we're gonna, are going to need to fight very hard to get any um, principal nominee confirmed in this kind of environment. We've been speaking with Carrie Severino. She's chief counsel and policy director of the Judicial Crisis Network, and she's also co-author of the great new book, Justice on Trial, the Kavanaugh Confirmation, and the Future of the Court. Carrie, thanks so much for joining us. Great to be here. And this is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back just after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. All right, before the last break, We were speaking with Carrie Severino about the courts and how contentious these battles have been, even for lower level federal judges, because of just how important those positions have become, which in and of itself is an indictment in in a sense of where our political system has gone, where the courts are hyper politicized and they are viewed in, in some sense as just another part of the legislative branch. And all of the fundamental questions of society seem to get kicked to the courts because our legislators don't do their job and actually legislate on these issues and represent the public on them. But it bears noting, once again, that the ideology matters. It's not just the tactics. It is what our representatives and the people that they appoint actually believe. And two of the most radical people currently representing, quote-unquote, Americans are Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. And obviously they've been in the news substantially over the last week, primarily regarding their non-trip to Israel. They, in their itinerary, their draft itinerary, they, they call themselves the delegation to Palestine, which in and of itself insinuates that they don't believe that Israel is a legitimate state. And of course, we can go through their litany of statements with respect to Israel and the like, which ultimately shows that their anti-Zionism, quote-unquote, is really just anti-Semitism masquerading as anti-Zionism. But it's important to note 
that in some sense is these representatives that personify a nexus between Islamists or at least those who carry their water and associate with them and hold many of the same positions as them, not just with respect to Israel, but also conversely with respect to the adversaries of Israel and also radical leftists. When we spoke before, when we started this episode tonight about the 1619 Project and this attempt to recast American history as being fundamentally one of racism, bigotry, oppression, where that racism and the issue of slavery and the institution of slavery pervades everything, pervades capitalism, the healthcare system, business, a fundamentally flawed and inherently evil founding. And what I would suggest is that the acolytes of the representative Omars and Talibs, these are the people I'm thinking of, of course, such as representatives of the Council on American-Islamic Relations, CARE, other Muslim Student Association, other groups where there are documented historical ties to the Muslim Brotherhood and a belief in Islamic supremacism and subversion and the like, they hold the same views or views that at least overlap with the left. And why is this the case? Well, for one thing, they have a common adversary, which is essentially Western civilization. But they also share the same sort of narrative. Just as the U.S. is cast as a racist, colonialist, oppressive, occupying country, the likes of Tlaib and Omar also characterize Israel that way. But of course, this anti-Zionism in the Islamic world was in part perpetuated by the left itself. And what I'm getting at here, and I will break this down in depth, is that anti-Semitism masquerading as anti-Zionism is part of the glue that holds the left and the Islamists together. But they have also found a way to meld their worldviews, their core philosophy, their histories of how countries have developed over time for propagandistic purposes to lend an air of legitimacy to their causes, which ultimately are about overthrowing these nations. I want to read to you a little bit about the language that was invoked, for example, by Yasser Arafat, who was the founder of Fatah and led the Palestine National Liberation Movement, quote-unquote, in the 60s. This is from 1969. A quote here. Fatah, the Palestine National Liberation Movement, is not struggling against the Jews as an ethnic and religious community. It is struggling against Israel as the expression of colonization based on a theocratic, racist, and expansionist system and of Zionism and colonialism, unquote. Now, I'm, I'm going to quote from Joshua Moravchik, who wrote this critical book, Making David into Goliath. He adds, it linked this cause to other revolutionary movements around the world, including most notably the anti-American sympathizer, sympathizers with the North Vietnamese, stating, and I quote, the struggle of the Palestinian people, like that of the Vietnamese people and other peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, is part of the historic process of the liberation of the oppressed peoples from colonialism and imperialism. So Arafat used this language, these words, colonization, theocratic, racist, expansionist, Zionism and colonialism. And he put the Arab movement against Israel as being about liberation of the oppressed peoples from colonialism and imperialism. In other words, what you saw is a link between these leftist national liberation movements around the world, generally backed by the Soviet Union, and his cause, the Arab cause against Israel. 
Arafat would also describe it this way. Our struggle is part and parcel of every struggle against imperialism, injustice, and oppression in the world. It is the part of the world revolution which aim at establishing, listen to this, social justice and liberating mankind, unquote. That language is exactly the language that the left uses today. So there is a straight line that you can draw between that movement that Yasser Arafat led back in the 60s, his rhetoric, the Soviet Union with which they were aligned, and I'll express that linkage in just a moment, and the exact language that we see today from Congresswoman Tlaib and Omar and others in the squad and the rest of the Congressional Progressive Caucus and the New York Times, too. So elite opinion is essentially the same opinion as that held by, back in the 60s, the Soviet Union, its proxies, and in particular, the Arabists who were trying to destroy the Zionist, imperialist, colonializing entity. What we are seeing today are the heirs of that ideology. And when I come back, I'm going to delve deeper into these ideological ties and then what you're seeing manifest itself in today's modern Democratic Party. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton here on The Buck Sexton Show, back just after this. Welcome back to The Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. Before the break, I was talking about this nexus that we are seeing today within the Democratic Party and specifically within its left wing, which is increasingly, increasingly dominating the party, of Islamist rhetoric and those who carry their water in Congress and leftism more broadly. And what you see in the squad is basically the full spectrum from an identity politics perspective of this. But also what you see is that there is overlap in terms of their worldviews, their intersectionality, quote unquote, and it's reflected in historical rhetoric and rhetoric today. So I was speaking before about the fact that Yasser Arafat, jihadist, Islamic supremacist, when he founded Fatah, the language that Fatah used in terms of Palestinian national liberation movement, as they called it, perfectly paralleled the kind of rhetoric that we see from the left today. Theocratic, racist, expansionist, colonialist, imperialist. And so if you were all those things, i.e. if you were the West, be it America or Israel, you were to be opposed. And consequently, the Arabs ultimately over time after the 1967 war, six-day war, they became a cause celeb of the left. Originally, from 1948, Israel's founding through 67, Israel was viewed as the underdog in a sea of people who hated it and wished to see its destruction, barely able to survive, outnumbered by 50 times, outgunned. But after 67, when in a defensive war, they defeated the armed forces of, among others, Saudi Arabia and Jordan, then they became an occupier, quote-unquote. And the left's language was perfectly molded on to the Islamist movement. The Soviet Union itself was heavily backing these jihadists in the Middle East. I want to read a little bit about these ties. The highest ever ranking KGB official, Soviet intelligence officer, Soviet bloc intelligence officer rather, his name was Lieutenant General Pachepa, Ion Mihai Pachepa. He wrote in a Wall Street Journal 
op-ed back in 2003 of these ties. And it's very relevant when you think about where the left is today and how these Islamist backers fit, consorters, colluders fit in their party. Here's what Pachepa said. He said, Arafat was an important undercover operative for the KGB. Right after the 1967 six-day Arab-Israeli war, Moscow got him appointed a chairman of the PLO. Egyptian ruler Nasser, a Soviet puppet, proposed the appointment. In 1969, the KGB asked Arafat to declare war on American, quote-unquote, imperial Zionism during the first summit of the Black Terrorist International, a neo-fascist pro-Palestine organization financed by the KGB and Libya's Muammar Gaddafi. It appealed to him so much, Arafat later claimed to have invented the imperial Zionist battle cry. But in fact, imperial Zionism, quote-unquote, was a Moscow invention, a modern adaptation of the protocols of the elders of Zion, and along a favorite tool of Russian intelligence to foment ethnic hatred. The KGB always regarded anti-Semitism plus imperialism as a rich source of anti-Americanism. I want to repeat that line because it so perfectly explains today's blame America first left. The KGB always regarded anti-Semitism plus anti-imperialism as a rich source of anti-Americanism. We're witnessing history alive in real time right now. It's a scary history. Arafat wasn't the only person who personified this. Mahmoud Abbas, as you know, is in the 14th year of his four-year term as president of the Palestinian Authority. which rules in most of the West Bank. I'm going to quote from an article about Abbas now. Arab-language anti-Zionist literature was an important part of Soviet propaganda directed at the Middle East. And this comes from a great article, by the way, in Fathom magazine. According to Israeli investigative journalist Ronan Bergman, it served as source material for Mahmoud Abbas's 1982 PhD. In the early 80s, Abbas was enrolled at Moscow's Patrice Lumbumba University, a school established to train future third world elites in Marxism-Leninism and prepare them to become pro-Soviet influencers. See the link between the Islamists and the leftists here? He defended his dissertation at Moscow's Institute of Oriental Studies, an important institution within the Academy of Sciences, which regularly turned out scholarly, quote-unquote, works for demonizing Zionism in Israel. And it goes on to say that while Abbas was there, it was headed, this institute, by Yevgeny Primakov, an Arabist with lifelong connections to Soviet intelligence in the Middle East, who would eventually become the head of the Soviet Foreign Intelligence Agency, SVR. Primakov was personally appointed Abbas's dissertation advisor. And the article writes that this shows the importance that the Soviet foreign policy and intelligence establishments attached to the educational output of this already prominent Palestinian leader. The article continues, Abbas's dissertation was published as a book in 2011 in Arabic under the title The Other Side, The Secret Relationship Between Nazism and Zionism. Several passages from the book reproduced in Bergman's article replicate some of the mainstays of the Soviet anti-Zionist campaign, including those concerning the alleged Zionist collaboration with the Nazis during the Holocaust and casting doubt on the number of Holocaust victims. This is a guy who is presented as a peace partner, by the way who Tlaib and Omar and many of their fellow Democrats stand with. The article writes, A particularly curious piece of historical falsification that made it into Abbas's book concerned Adolf Eichmann's capture by the Mossad. According to Bergman, Eichmann, of course, being one of the most notorious Nazis. Masterminds behind Nazism. According to Bergman, Abbas wrote that the Mossad abducted Eichmann in order to prevent the high-ranking Nazi from revealing the secret of Zionist role in the Final Solution. 
That is, Zionists actually caused the Holocaust in conjunction with the Nazis, according to Abbas, who leads the Palestinian Authority. Living representative of the left Islamist nexus. I'm going to read another quote from Pachepa from an interview I conducted with him via email back in 2014 that I urge you to check out. He said that in 1972, during a breakfast in his office, KGB chairman Andropov told me that our disinformation machinery should ignite a campaign aimed at transforming Arab anti-Semitism into an anti-American doctrine for the whole Muslim world. See, this isn't just about Zionism. It's about America. It's about freedom. He continues, the idea was to portray the United States as a warmongering Zionist country financed by Jewish money and run by a rapacious Council of the Elders of Zion the aim of which was to transform the rest of the world into a Jewish fiefdom. And continues, the KGB boss, Andropov, described the Muslim world as a waiting petri dish in which we could nurture a strain of hate America. The Muslims had a taste for nationalism, jingoism, and victimology. We had only to keep repeating over and over that the United States was a warmongering Zionist country financed by Jewish money with the goal of taking over the whole world. And the KGB proceeded to throw millions of dollars behind that disinformation effort, that propaganda effort. So you see, the left Islamist ties go way back. And in some sense, Tlaib and Omar and those who stand with them are representative of this ideology, of this link. They're also the heirs of Edward Said, who himself sort of personified this. He was a professor who was both an elitist teaching at Ivy League universities and also a member of the Palestinian movement, quote-unquote. I'm going to read how Moravchik described Sayyid's most famous work, Orientalism. He said, Orientalism was created to expose the evil worm at the core of Western civilization, namely its inability to define itself except against an imagined other. That other was the Oriental. Said claimed that every European in what he could say about the Orient was a racist and imperialist and almost totally ethnocentric. Elsewhere in the text, he made clear that what was true for Europeans held equally for Americans. He goes on to say that this echoed a theme of 1960s radicalism, which was forged in the movements against Jim Crow and against America's war in Vietnam, namely that the Caucasian race was the scourge of humanity. Moravcha continues that the Marxist notion of class struggle had never resonated in America. Race was a different matter. For Europe, colonialism and imperialism were the original sins. But in America, the victimization of blacks through slavery and segregation was a running sore. The great stain on the nation's honor. The excruciating counterpoint to the proclaimed ideals of the founding fathers. Said rolled American racism and European colonialism into one ball of wax. White oppression of darker-skinned peoples. He was not the only thinker to have forged this amalgam, but he made a unique contrib- contribution in portraying Orientals as the epitome of the dark-skinned. Muslims as the representative of Orientals. Arabs as the essential Muslims, and finally, Palestinians as the ultimate Arabs. Abracadabra, Israel, in conflict with the Palestinians, was transformed from a redemptive refuge from 2,000 years of persecution to the very embodiment of white supremacy. And that is exactly how the left is defining not only Israel today, but America today. We are living through, we are living with the results of this effort to attack Western civilization. Anti-Semitism masquerading as anti-Zionism, but as an essential part also of anti-Americanism. And so when you have on Thanksgiving, Congresswoman Omar back in 2017, then a state representative tweeting about the fact that 
we occupy the land of our indigenous neighbors. When she stated, we must confront that, that our nation was founded by genocide and we maintain global power through neocolonialism. We must confront that our nation was founded by the genocide of indigenous people and on the backs of slaves, that we maintain global power with the tenor of neocolonialism. What we are witnessing is anti-Americanism in the U.S. House of Representatives. And we are witnessing a Democratic Party that by its own silence, if not active defense of these representatives, anti-American representatives, they're saying that they consent to it. Whether out of politics or out of cowardice or both. And that is a disaster for America. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we're about to close up shop here. And I want to see if I can tie a nice little bow around some of the themes that we have delved into during tonight's episode. You know, the direction of a nation is attributable to the ideas that predominate in it. What we talked about at the start of this episode was a view of American history that represents an underlying philosophy. The view of American history that we are a racist, colonialist, rapacious, oppressive, occupying, misogynist, throw out your adjective that describes us as a horrible nation conceived in sin and where that sin continues to pervade every aspect of our society. Well, if you take that view of our nation as opposed to one which is the greatest bastion of liberty in the history of mankind— and consequently has produced, but the freedom, the, the peace, the prosperity that all of us have been able to enjoy, that gives us the time to be able to complain about all of these invented issues in many cases, not all of them, but oftentimes we are complaining about things where you can't even perceive them. They're unconscious. Two competing philosophies. If you take the view that our history is evil, our nation is evil, we're not a virtuous nation, but we're one conceived in sin and we're dominated by our vices and that those vices pervade every aspect of our society, well, then what is the natural response to that? The natural response is if we're immoral, we need to make the nation moral. If we're not virtuous, we need to be virtuous. And if you take the perspective that the American experiment as it's laid out is horrible, evil, then to do good would be to overturn that order. To fundamentally transform society, to turn it on its head. And that is what these ideologues seek to do. And we've talked about this unholy sort of nexus, alliance, between those on the left and the Islamists and the people who carry water for the Islamists. We see this manifested, personified by today's squad, what unites them? Their view that we're evil. What also unites them? The view that we need to overturn it by imposing a system completely antithetical to the one we were lucky enough to have received from our national forefathers. How do they put this into practice? As I noted, they demoralize us through telling us this history, through crafting this narrative about how horrible a nation we are. And when you hear it day in and day out, and then it's propagated in plays and television shows and movies, and when teachers at every single level are pumping out this sort of worldview, what do you think is going to happen to your society? 
What do you think is going to happen to your elites? The people who are in the House of Representatives and these new young left progressives, they're elites. The New York Times defines the elite worldview. They all share the same one. If the people at the top of our institutions with the best credentials, purportedly the best educations, if they are going to promulgate this worldview, that's how they intend to dominate. But if you won't go along with it, they will drag you kicking and screaming. And so you see it in terms of woke capitalism, where you have these social justice warriors threatening companies, the companies caving to them if the executives in these companies weren't themselves inculcated in this very same anti-American, blame America first sort of worldview. You'll see it imposed in civil society through big tech. You'll see them attack you on social media. At the end of the day, it's about chilling dissent because they know that in our hearts as Americans, we understand that this is a fundamentally good human endeavor. The only way they can topple it is by propagandizing. And then if you won't go along with the propaganda, forcing, imposing their views upon you. Ultimately, so that they can collect power for themselves, not for democracy, as they'll always talk about democracy. No, it isn't about redistributing power down to the people. It's about taking power from the people, redistributing it to themselves with the promise that it will come back to you. And ultimately, you get crumbs. And you've lost your freedom in the process. The only way to counter this is to put forth a counter narrative, to have better ideas, fight them in the war of ideas, refuse to be cowed into submission by the Twitter mobs and the people attacking you on Facebook. They want to instill fear because they don't want to debate on the merits. And that's why you have to beat them on the substance. And they do not expect you to punch back figuratively. They punch literally. We punch back figuratively. I want to thank Buck Sexton for giving me the opportunity to fill in tonight. I want to thank you for listening. And I hope that you will engage in this war of ideas every day because it is about the direction of the future of this country. It's about the kind of country your children will inherit and their children will inherit. This has been Ben Weigern filling in for Buck Sexton. Thanks so much and have a great weekend.